Welcome back to our Demystifying the DSM, where I'm going through chapter by chapter and discussing all of the DSM diagnoses and their criteria. I'm Christy Bundy-Kamara, psychiatric nurse practitioner with over 20 years of clinical experience and lots of life experience. So we are entering into the chapter on sleep-wake disorders. And the first DSM in that chapter is insomnia. And I think we all think we know what insomnia is. And I can tell you statistics say that 30% of adults report symptoms of insomnia. Now, remember, if you've been following me on this DSM criteria, you actually have to meet all of the criteria to get a diagnosis of insomnia. It's not just, oh, I'm having some trouble sleeping. So 30% of adults complain of some sort of sleep disorder or disordered sleeping, but only 10% actually meet the criteria for insomnia. And of those 10%, 40 to 50% of those actually have a comorbid, you know, maybe anxiety, depression, something else that we might be treating in psychiatry. So yes, insomnia can be a standalone diagnosis, but oftentimes it is comorbid with some other type of mood disorder. We see this a lot in mental health. I would say in my practice, probably 50% of the patients complain and meet criteria for insomnia because they have a primary diagnosis of either depression, anxiety, bipolar. When these things are going on in the brain, sleep often gets disrupted. So what do we need to meet the criteria for insomnia? The first criteria, criteria A, is just purely the dissatisfaction with the quality of sleep. As a psychiatric practitioner, I sometimes struggle with the subjectivity of that criteria, right? Because there's so many things around mental health and even the way that you talk to yourself, the way that you believe what you can and cannot do can influence how you're functioning. And so if you keep telling yourself, I can't sleep, I can't, I can't, I can't, you can actually be contributing to that. And so just having to say, I am dissatisfied with how either the initiation of sleep, the maintenance of sleep, or the waking too early and not feeling like you got rested sleep. So that is a very subjective first criteria. However, to meet criteria for insomnia, there has to be a clinical significance. So there has to be some sort of impairment and function. You're not able to stay awake at work. You're super tired. You are not functioning well cognitively. Some sort of symptom is resulting from not getting that sleep. The next criteria, criteria C, is that this is happening at least two to three times a week and has been going on for longer than three months. That's criteria D. Criteria E, now this one is important. The problem with sleep is despite a good opportunity to sleep. And now this is where I can say, okay, you might say that you're dissatisfied with your sleep. Are you giving yourselves all the right opportunity? Are you making sure you have at least eight hours from the time you lay down to try to go to sleep till the time you have to wake up? Are you doing things that promote sleep or are you making choices that disrupt sleep? So choices that disrupt sleep, very common if you're a smoker, smoking nicotine in and of itself is a stimulant. And I don't know a smoker that doesn't smoke before they go to bed, right? Are you making choices? Are you really giving yourself the opportunity to sleep? We don't want to just say everyone has insomnia. 
we want to make sure that we're working around this in a conditioning manner as well. Sleep is super, super important. It's one of the basics of self-care, but it's also about self-care, making those choices, giving yourself the opportunity for sleep. So that's criteria E. Criteria EFGH are kind of all, you know, is there another reason? Is there another sleep-wake disorder, which we'll go into next, the other sleep-wake disorders? Is there side effect of medication? Is there another medical reason why you can't sleep? Which we'll talk about some of those as far as sleep disorders specifically. But pure insomnia, you can have, like I said, 30% of adults report symptoms of difficulty with sleep. 10% actually meet criteria for insomnia. Only half of those have a comorbid So there is purely someone who just meets criteria for insomnia. Now, when we're looking at criterias FG and H, where we're making sure that it's not due to something else, I strongly, strongly encourage practitioners, individuals, make sure that we're doing a sleep study. There are many things that we cannot assess just from a physical assessment. So a sleep study, usually you go into a center, sometimes they can be done at home, but you would go into a center, they would hook up leads to your brain to look at your brain waves. So they would be able to tell when you're in REM sleep, how much REM sleep you're getting, how often you wake up, and what kind of things are obstructing sleep. And as we go through the other sleep-wake disorders, you know, I will talk about how those are picked up in a sleep study. So it's super important when we're diagnosing insomnia that we are making sure that we do our assessment. So in our assessment, we would look for comorbid conditions, depression, anxiety, those kinds of things. And then we would also have the patient do a sleep diary. I want you every night, every morning, kind of journal at night, you know, what did you do to prepare for sleep? And then in the morning, what was that that night like? Okay. And so you would do this over a course of a couple weeks. This also brings to the surface if there are behaviors that are taken away from that opportunity because sleep is a conditioning response, right? It is natural. We need it. It's where we heal. It should be a priority. But I feel like oftentimes, especially in in my profession of psychiatry, people want a pill to help them sleep. And I can tell you many times, and we'll talk about some of the treatment, but many times that is maybe masking another problem or taking away the opportunity for you to condition your body to be able to sleep naturally, there is a time and place for medication for insomnia, but it should not be our first-line treatment. We should be educating our patients, ourselves, about, number one, sleep hygiene. What kinds of things promote sleep? Are we making decisions that are in line with that? I mean, there are things like uh, shift-wake disorder. There are situations where maybe there's nothing you can do about it. I know lots of special needs moms that absolutely cannot, you know, do some of the things that you should be doing for optimal sleep, right? Like turning off your phone, not having any light on in the room, you know, making sure that you're giving yourself an eight-hour period. If your child doesn't do that, or if you have young children. But again, making sure that at some point we're making sleep a priority, we're figuring this piece out. Obviously, there's practical reasons why not everybody can do all the things that you should be doing to try to promote sleep. But, you know, making sure that we're not just throwing an insomnia diagnosis on everyone says that, you know, they can't sleep. So in that assessment, we're doing the sleep diary and we're really assessing this individual's ability to make sleep a priority and making, you know, that opportunity and that they're, you know, helping them make choices that can improve their sleep without medication. 
even promoting exercise, not right before bed, but exercise in general and wakefulness during the day, I often have people say, oh, I can't sleep at night. Well, what are you doing during the day? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not working right now. Uh, I stay home. I'm resting most of the day. Or maybe there's a mental health or medical condition that causes them to not really be able to do a lot of physical activity. That can disrupt sleep because it messes with the sleep-wake cycle. So remembering that exercise and conditioning, conditioning the body with habit. I go to bed at this time. I wake up at this time. Making that routine so that the body can catch up with that sleep-wake cycle. Last resort is medication. And there is medication for sleep. Starting with the most benign are antihistamines. This is what is in most of the sleep aids that you find over-the-counter. Some of the -the over-the-counter things can have melatonin in them. That's a whole nother video of whether that is safe or not safe. But melatonin is a natural hormone that your body produces in darkness. So if you can create absolute darkness in your environment, your brain will begin to produce melatonin and help you get to sleep. Then we have the non-benzo options that have been around for a while. They're basically sedatives. We try not to use true sedative hypnotics for sleep because they can be addicting. So the non-benzodiazepines, things like Ambience, they promote sleep. And for the people that they work for, they work well. Now, sometimes they can create some para-insomnias where you actually begin to have nightmares or you have sleepwalking. If that's the case, they have to come off of that medication. It's a side effect of the medication and you'll look into something else. Some people are still using benzodiazepines for sleep. I try really hard not to do that. Benzodiazepines are addicting. They are a CNS depressant. If there is a comorbid depression or anxiety, it's going to interfere with my treatment for um, depression and anxiety. And so I try my hardest to not use benzodiazepines for sleep. However, I do have a handful of patients who that's the only thing that works for them and they are on it. But it's, like I said, again, they're addicting, they're a CNS depressant, they are not healthy, they're not supposed to be used for daily use. And so I really try to avoid those. Now, the exciting thing is there's a new class of medication called a Rexon receptor antagonist, and they actually bind to their Rexon receptors in the brain. But Rexon receptors are actually our sleep-wake cycle receptors. So it's the only sleep medication that's actually treating the sleep or actually treating the underlying sleep-wake cycle rather than just giving a sedative to try to get you to sleep. So those are some options that you can talk to your provider about if you're a provider listening, just knowing that not all sleep medication is the same. The mechanism of action is different. The reason a prescriber would choose something would be different. And we do want to try to promote sleep conditioning, sleep hygiene, where the body can naturally get back into that sleep-wake cycle by itself. So that is my review of insomnia. Keep watching the Demystifying the DSM as we continue. Mm-hmm.